How are we doing? Well, that was a good loud response. That was good. Look, uh, when we're on holidays, we usually go to the various churches that we discover and find along the way, which is great. And I uh, love fellowshipping and, and getting to know people in other churches. But recently I went to one and it, it was good to be there, and to, but it was also slightly sad. And the reason it was slightly, sli- slightly sad is because it was quiet, really quiet. Why was it so quiet? They had no children. And they would have done anything to have some children in their congregation. So, to the parents here this morning who are slightly stressed because your kids are making noise and you're like partly wrestling with, hey, we want to worship the Lord and I want to strangle my child at the same time. Um, Look, we love your kids, don't we, church? Amen? Absolutely, right? So, yes, we love the kids. So, I get it. I've been there. I know it's stressful. But you know what? We love them and it means that God is blessing our church. So, um, we are so thankful for the kids. So, don't stress out too much when they make noise. All right, let's get to our message this morning. There are certain emotions that are suitable for specific situations, are there not? Example, you don't go to a funeral expecting laughter and having a fun time in mind. It is interesting, I think, when a person gets to plan their funeral in advance, as, you know, I've taken a lot of funerals, and they want it to be a celebration. And so they include some funny photos and videos and stories, but it's always slightly awkward because everyone at a funeral is there to grieve and say goodbye and so people kind of smile at the thing that's meant to be funny, but no one's quite sure whether or not to laugh. It's just kind of awkward because there are certain emotions that we bring to that situation. Conversely, a wedding is a place to come and celebrate. You don't bring the same emotional attitude to a wedding as you do a funeral. We are gathered here today to mourn the union of this couple. Um, Like, it's just not how it goes, right? Like, we come to a wedding to celebrate. If you are sad and quiet and looking morose at a wedding, people rightly are going to say, what's wrong with you? Now, as we move through life, it's not all weddings and funerals. Most days are far more monotonous than that. There was no milk for my coffee this morning. I will burn down the house around my teenage children who drank it all, right? This is one experience that we have. Or I went to the shops today and there were two parks that were both empty so I could drive through without having to back in and then drive away. Life doesn't get any better than that, right? So these are, these are the experiences that we go through every day of the ups and downs. However, what if we could permanently change the underlying state of our feeling, still have ups and downs, but the base that we normally operate from is the wedding and not the funeral, the park and not the lack of milk? Well, it's not only possible, but it's promised. And that is what our passage is about together this morning. Recap, last week Jesus talked about his departure, and he used that as a platform to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
that he would come, bring conviction, and reveal the truth of Jesus. This week, Jesus again talks about his departure, but this week he talks about his departure and return and the consequences of that. So that's where we're up to. So if you have your Bible, John 16, 16 through to 24. John 16, 16 through to 24. We're seriously getting there in our journey through the Gospel of John, aren't we? All right, John 16, 16 to 24. In a little while, you will no longer see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he's telling us? In a little while you will not see me. Again, in a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. They said, What is this he is saying? In a little while we don't know what he is talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another about what I said? In a little while you will not see me. Again, in a little while you will see me. Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. In that day, you will not ask me anything. Truly, I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be complete. All right. So Jesus again tells them that he will be leaving something that he's been telling them fairly often throughout this journey with the disciples. And once again, the disciples don't want to hear it. They're kind of unable to hear it. They just don't want to contemplate that Jesus is leaving. But this time, he had something incredibly encouraging. In a little while, you will see me again. Now, as I said, fairly standard procedure, the disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying. They have never been able to tr- grasp the truth about Jesus. And it's a wrestle with the truth that many Jews today still cannot grasp either. That is, that the Messiah would not be a nationalistic ruler who would lead Israel to the top of the nations again. This is what the disciples had been waiting for, for Jesus to take up his sword and lead them on a revolution to conquer Rome. And that's not who Jesus is, and they can't grasp it. What they can't grasp, what lays at the bottom of their problem with understanding Jesus, is that the Messiah is going to suffer and die, and that in fact his death would be at the hands of the Romans, the very people the Jews thought the Messiah was going to conquer. It's a complete reversal of their expectation, a complete reversal of who they thought the Messiah would be. And so they just cannot grasp. This is why every time Jesus tries to explain it, they cannot accept what he is saying. Because Jesus is not who they want Jesus to be. Now, we've talked about this many times, but that's a problem still 
huge in the world today. Many people want Jesus to be who they want him to be rather than who he is. We've got lots of variations of that, don't we? There's the fairy godmother Jesus just blessing my life and handing out gifts. Here you go, here's a blessing to you and a car for you and money for you. He's just my fairy godmother Jesus. Or there's the severe Jesus just smiting those dirty sinners outside these walls, right? We're just waiting for him to judge those dirty people out there. Or there's that kind of weak Jesus, like I'm God's princess Jesus, um, rather than the biblical definition, which refers to women in scriptures as fellow contenders in the gospel, right? That's what you are, ladies. You're a soldier for Jesus, right? This is what the scripture says, I'm God's princess. No, soldier for Jesus, right? So we've got to get and understand Jesus is who Jesus is. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. We have our thinking shaped by him. We don't shape him to our thinking. And this is what the Jews were trying to do. They wanted a conquering king to conquer the Rome, to conquer Rome, and instead they got the suffering servant. And they can't accept him. Don't make that mistake, church. Come to the Bible with an open mind and learn who Jesus is from the Scriptures. Not who the world says he is, who he is. Now, in our passage, Jesus knew what they were thinking. Either supernaturally or because, as I said, They were never understanding, and Jesus simply knew they wanted to ask him a question. Either way, Jesus explains what he meant when he said it to them, and it's incredibly profound and amazing. Verse 20, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. Now, Jesus here is talking about the crucifixion. The disciples will mourn but the world will rejoice. Why? Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. What does that mean? Well, biblically, all of us, every one of us, are born dead in our sins and trespasses. God's standard is perfection. Any lie, any theft, any self-seeking is a rejection of God, means we are less than perfect and we are condemned as guilty and God's punishment is hell, not a party with your friends, but an eternal burning where you will remember forever the fact that you rejected God and his offer of salvation. That's what waits for us, right? That is the biblical picture and it applies to all people. So why does the world rejoice? Because the world felt that they had decisively killed the source of their feelings of guilt, shame, and darkness of soul that Jesus had exposed. This is why the world still responds so strongly to Jesus today. You can talk about God, no worries at all. You can talk about Islam, Buddha, no worries at all. Talk about Jesus, fangs out. Why? Because Jesus reveals our hearts as dark. And people would rather destroy the light 
than come out of the dark. Right? That's what the scripture tells us. So the world rejoiced for they thought they had won. And yet all they did was play their part in the definite plan of God. Jesus died by the will of the Father. His death uh, was your death when you're included in Christ. He died instead of you. This is why Jesus tells them, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. One of the most crazy and amazing experiences of my life is that of my three children being born. Seriously, hats off to all of you mums. The pain and struggle that you go through is full on. It's hard on us men in a different way. And I say that legitimately. But I'm called by God to lay down my life for Beth. And I take that seriously. And to see your wife in pain, and there's not a thing you can do about it, it's hard. It's genuinely hard. So I found that a real wrestle. But So I remember sitting there going like, what can I do? I remember being teary, like Beth's in so much pain, and, and I don't know what to do, and you know... And then she'd be yelling at me. No, that didn't happen much. Anyway, um, uh, but here's the thing. All of a sudden, a child was born. And the midwife would grab that child and lay them on Beth's chest. And the profound look of love that she instantly had for those kids floors me to this day. I still think it's the greatest look of love I will ever see in this life and ever will. From pain and struggle to that picture, is it any wonder that Jesus chose that illustration to depict the difference between the sorrow at the death of Christ on the cross versus the joy of when he is resurrected to life, right? That's the illustration that Jesus chose to give us. That picture of love is the illustration that Christ gives us. According to Christ, she no longer remembers her pain for the joy that a person has been born into the world, right? The gift of a life, and that's what Christ gives us. But there's something even more profound about what Jesus is saying. Something even bigger and more profound than a mother and her child. In verse 22, Jesus says, I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. There's something promised here that is eternal, that cannot be taken, which is what uh, Christ is promising here, and it's something purely and incredible. The first point that I want to make of that is this. The foundation of this everlasting joy is not that they will see Jesus, which is what you might expect. But note what he says. He will see them. Very carefully recorded in your passage. 
And you will have joy because Jesus will see them. Why does that matter? You would expect you to say you'll have joy because you will see me again, wouldn't you? Isn't that what you'd think? Jesus says, no, 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 you'll have joy because I will see you. Well, this is a constant theme in Scripture. Galatians 4.9 says, But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God. John 15.16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Why does this matter? Well, part of our joy, part of our heart's rejoicing is that we are chosen by God. Not because of who we are or what we've done, not on the basis of your goodness. If it depended on you, you are not good enough. No, Jesus chose you before the foundation of the world by his grace, by his will, for his pleasure. Right? That is the foundation of our salvation. Jesus is saying, you might see me and my goodness, my lordship and my salvation, but we are fickle people, aren't we? Who here loves Jesus the way they should all of the time? Anyone? No. No, Jesus says, what is more important than that is that I will see you. I know you. I have chosen you. That is the foundation of our joy church. For who can snatch us from the very hand of the Father? That is what Jesus is promising. Best way I can sort of illustrate this, divorce is always a tragedy, isn't it? You make vows and promises to one another and and on that day you mean them and you believe that nothing could change that. Unfortunately, we live in a sinful world and we're sinful people and promises are broken and hearts are wounded. It's always a challenging thing, a very sad and challenging thing. But that is why Jesus sees us. For when we are faithless, he is faithful. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who has chosen you and he will never change his mind and he will never break his promise and he will always be faithful. Jesus sees you and that creates a joy that cannot be taken from you. Amen? It's not about you. It's about Jesus. This is why, as I said, Jesus says, no one will take your joy from you. This is why, despite the ups and downs of life, we have joy as Christians that can never be taken from us. No person, no obstacle, no circumstance, no pandemic, no government, nothing. Because Jesus is telling the disciples... And he's telling you that when they see him again, when he sees them, it will be after his resurrection, and that means sin and death will have been defeated. Jesus will have paid the penalty of the sin for those who are his, and we have risen to eternal life with him. That's what Jesus is saying. Between when they see him go and when he comes back, all of that will have taken place. Colossians 2, 12 to 15 says this. Listen to this really carefully. This is the basis of our joy. 
When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. You know what that says? That you, when you give your life to Christ, were buried with him, you were raised with him, and because of his sacrifice, all of your sins have been forgiven because Jesus paid the penalty on the cross. Your debt of sin, your obligation of trying to earn God's favor was nailed to the cross. You have eternal life forevermore because Jesus paid your debt and rose to eternal life and those who put their faith in him are risen with him. Church, that's incredible. No one can take that from you. No one. Because you didn't earn it, it was not awarded, it is not bought It was given by the grace of God who knew who you were before you were born, who knew every sin you would ever commit, even the ones you still haven't committed yet, and he paid their penalty and nailed them to the cross. You now stand righteous forevermore right here and now when you put your faith in Jesus because all your sin has been dealt with. Your health may fail but you will have an eternity made whole with Jesus. Your heart may be broken, but you will have eternity with Jesus who will wipe every tear from your eye. You may lose friends and popularity, but you will have eternity with Jesus who calls you his family. You may die for your faith, but Jesus has given you life forevermore. This is the joy that cannot be taken from you. It changes everything. Don't get me wrong. We're still going to have our ups and downs, aren't we? If I get diagnosed with a chronic illness tomorrow, don't look for me to throw a chronic illness party on Tuesday. Right? It's not what it means. However, we need never give in to despair. Because we are filled with the Spirit. God's always with us. And Jesus, our greatest treasure, awaits. That's joy. Right? That's joy. And it cannot be taken from us. Church, if you're sitting here this morning and you're not feeling that truth, that deep down joy, then you've let the world grow too large. Its pains and its trials have taken hold of your gaze. And therefore, its pains and trials seem bigger than the promises of Christ. We need to take our eyes off the world and fix them again on the author and perfecter of our faith, on his promise of eternal joy. And it's that which gives us hope for today. Right? That is what Jesus is promising. Jesus finishes our passage for today by 
stating after his resurrection, we will have been made right with God. And so we can now ask the Father in the name of the Son who paid our penalty and he will give us what we ask for and we will receive it and it will make our joy complete. Now, this is one of those verses that can get taken out of context and promise all things it doesn't promise, but tell me, what have the disciples been asking for in context over the last few chapters of John? What has been their repeated thing they, they're asking for? Anyone know? Oh, I tell you, some homework for you lot. They're just constantly trying to learn more and understand more about who Jesus is, what he's doing. Right? The constant questions have been, but why are you going? Why do you say you're going away? We don't understand. They're constantly not understanding the plan and purpose of God. What Jesus is saying that after his resurrection, they will ask the Father and he will make it all known to them. So that's what Jesus actually says. I call you my friends. Why? Because I've made known to you the plans of God. I've made known to you the things of God. I call you my friends, not my servants, because he's made known to us the deep truths of God. And then so what we have is after the resurrection, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit brings the revealed truth of who God is, and suddenly we ask to know God, we ask to know the Son, we ask to know the Spirit, we ask to know the mystery of why Jesus had to die, why he had to pay the penalty of our sin, what it looks like in the resurrected life, and suddenly it's all made known to us. God has revealed the mystery of the ages to us in Jesus Christ. Church, what a blessing. Is there any greater joy than to know the truth of who Christ is and what he did? That's what is revealed. We have joy, true joy, rejoicing in our hearts that our sins are forgiven and joy of eternal life that cannot be taken from us. You do not get this joy by coming to church. You do not get this joy by being nice. You do not get this joy by stopping swearing. You may well be here this morning and not have this joy So how do you get it? Well, you have to die. And that's the truth of God's Word. It's a decision that must be made. It doesn't just happen because you come to church. It's a decision to give up this life you have been living. To die to your dreams you have made to yourself. Die to the goals and successes you had planned for your life. To give them all up, all of it, that you may gain Christ and the joy of his salvation. That's the gospel. No one gets to come to Jesus and say, oh, I want salvation and I want to be a millionaire. Oh, I want salvation and I want this. I want, oh, and I want popular, no. No, 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 you die to everything and say, Jesus is enough. Take my life. 
And if that means I'm going to be a missionary in Calcutta, then I'm a missionary in Calcutta. If it means I'm going to work a job where I make a lot of money and I use that to support missionaries in Calcutta, so be it, Lord. It's your choice, your will. I've died to all of that and I live for your glory. That's how you gain joy, the joy that's promised in the Scriptures. And I challenge you, if you've never done that, that's where you must come, where you give up your life, forsake it all for having gained Christ. And here's enough. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we think of the disciples and what Jesus said to them. They would have sorrow when Jesus would die on the cross. But the joy that they would have when they saw Christ resurrected is eternal joy. Because Christ resurrected is proof that he defeated sin and death. And that when we put our faith in him, we too will overcome death. We have life forever in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, there is nothing that can happen in this life, nothing that can happen on this world that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for each person here that they could give up, forsake, die to the things of this world. Put their faith in Christ knowing that he's enough and he alone can bring us into eternity with him. Lord, we just commit ourselves to you this morning in your precious name. Amen. Thanks.